those of you who are here this morning were uh, privileged to be taken to the early church in Antioch and see there a church that was engaged in worship and to see that an outflow of true worship, that is an understanding or a grasp of the true reality of the living God, will be thrust out in mission. In a sense, there's a, an unbreakable chain link that links together the character and the glory of God and the church being mobilized for mission. That's true of the church at Antioch, as we saw this morning. But it's also true of individuals uh, like the great prophet Isaiah, some 700 years or so before the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. He traced his vocation, his calling as a prophet, a spokesman of the true and living God, to his encounter with God. He first of all became a true worshipper of God through seeing God in the way that he really is. And that transformed him and it sent him forth on what was quite an arduous mission that the Lord would entrust to him. But a mission, even though it was going to be tough, was not going to be fruitless. And even though it would be difficult, it would actually reveal more of God's truth uh, to him. And it's our privilege together this evening as we look into this sixth chapter of Isaiah to see something of this particular unfolding of the link between the worship of God and our service of him in the midst of a needy world. I'd like us to look at the four sections that are clearly seen in a breakdown of this particular chapter because verses 1 to 4 contain a vision of God uh, which actually encapsulates for us what true worship is all about. And uh, then we see some of the elements of that true worship being unfolded Uh, particularly in verse 5, with the confession of sin. And then in verses 6 to 7, the cleansing from sin, the way in which the good news of, of God's transformative power is at the heart of worship. And then in verses 8 to 13, we see the commissioning of Isaiah and how this commissioning is, in a sense, worship with hands and feet, as we go out in obedience to God, as we take that step of faith, and as with our hands we practically share the good news of Jesus Christ in a practical way with those in need all around us. And so this is where we're going this evening as we look to the Lord to lead us and guide us uh, through uh, this passage And we begin with the vision of God. And right at the beginning of the service, I said, to actually have a vision of God, or to see God, particularly if we long to see him face to face, can be a terrifying thing. There are parts of scripture which say, who can see the Lord and continue to live? In the Old Testament, there were periods where uh, men like Moses Well, we'll come on to that in a moment, but was just given a vision of the backside or the hind quarters of God. 
So as we begin to dip our toes into this idea of a vision of God, uh, we do so with excitement, but also with a bit of trembling. Because although it should be a a mind-blowing and glorious and uh, uplifting experience to see and to know the living God, it can also be terrifying as we see the layers of our unbelief and rebellion sort of peeled away so that God can expose the inner darkness of our sinful hearts until it's transformed by the gospel. So we start off with a vision of God in verses 1 to 4. And we perhaps could begin by asking the question, why do we need a vision of God? And uh, in verses 1 to 5, Uh, what we have presented to us is uh, a picture of two kings who are introduced and contrasted. We see, on the one hand, King Hosea. In the year that King Hosea died, I saw the Lord, the second king, the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts. And this really hearths for us, in reality, the life and ministry and experience of the prophet Isaiah. Yes, he lived uh, thousands of years ago, but actually he wasn't just some mythical figure or some historical or romantic figure, but he was a man who lived in a similar reality to our own. The actual uh, king Uh, Uzziah uh, was an interesting figure. He lived for about 52 years as the king of uh, Judah, the the southern nation uh, of Israel, on the throne for 52 years. In a sense, he was like living in what we would call the new Elizabethan age. I think the majority of us here uh, have not lived in a time when we were not part of the United Kingdom ruled over by Queen Elizabeth II. And so Isaiah was living in a day where there had been a certain amount of stability under the reign of Uzziah. His reign was characterized by great military uh, conquests, restoring much of the the power and the land of Israel Uh, That would have been true in the A-day of King David and Solomon's time. But tragically, towards the end of his life, he allowed the sin of pride to creep in. And he was there in the temple, seeking to make sacrifices to God that God had not demanded of him. And in his selfish pride, he was struck down with perhaps leprosy. And so he lived out the decades of his rule in the last few years as a leper, isolated and set apart from his people. And yet, often it's to our human kings or our human leaders that we look to for leadership. But what this vision of God provides for us is a contrast between trust in human princes and in human lords, who will always fail us. Uh, Just a few pages back in chapter 2 and verse 22, um, Isaiah makes this uh, startling claim. Stop regarding man 
in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? Putting your trust in human princes will fail, especially when there's an opportunity to put your trust in the divine king and in his lordship. So what, what this vision exposes for us, as so often, is that in a period of increased wealth and prosperity that had been brought uh, upon the people, it allowed them to, in a sense, lose sight of God so that the people felt secure in their sins. As they put their trust in their current political and economic and social situation, they lost sight of their dependence upon God. And this seems to be the tale of sinful human nature, that in times of prosperity, uh, we tend to lose sight of God. And our thoughts of man is sort of exalted, and our thoughts of God are brought down. And it's only when we reverse this order that we begin to think great thoughts of God and lesser thoughts of man that, in a sense, we are on the road to spiritual transformation. And that's why we need to consider verses like this, which bring to us a vision of God. So as we've seen, Hosea uh, was the man who was on the throne. Uh, He was... Uh, as I already mentioned, uh, soon to die. He died as a leper in his own house, away from the palace. And what a, weak trans- what, what a weak person to put our faith and our trust in. But as we come to the vision now in verses 1 to 4, by contrast we see that Isaiah finds a secure foundation for trusting in the Lord. Look with me at verse 1. In the year that King Hosiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, and each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, And with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. So here is a picture or the vision of the glory of God. We see, first of all, that the Lord is so special because he is seated on a throne. And if you read some of the commentators, there's quite a bit of debate as to who exactly the Lord is here who is sitting upon the throne. Is it Yahweh, the Old Testament personalized God, who is the king and the Lord of his people? Others would say, um, because of the subsequent testimony of the angels and uh, the commissioning that is sent forth, it could well be a, a Isaiah is given a glimpse into the throne room of heaven itself and uh, to a, a foretaste of the incar- pre-incarnate Son of God, 
the Lord Jesus Christ, who had been to this world, had purchased salvation, and had then returned to heaven to sit at his Father's right hand until the day when he returns, as we were singing of in the last verse of our last hymn. So it could be the Father, it could be the Son seated on the throne. But the mere mention of the throne is a picture of God's kingly rule, that either God eternally sits upon the throne, or for a time that throne is entrusted to his eternal only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who uh, through his death and resurrection and his being the uh, King of kings and Lord of lords and the Prince of peace, is in a sense exercising the kingly rule of God through the history of the human race and who one day will sit upon the throne of judgment to exercise judgment upon the wicked and believing world and to bring recompense and restoration and justice to those who have suffered. Whoever it is who is seated on the throne, the picture is of his regal sovereignty, his objective power and control over the world. And so in the year that King Uzziah died and was laid aside, Isaiah is granted this vision of the Lord sitting upon a throne. He is high and exalted, high and lifted up. In a sense, he is in a sense, um, uh, beyond manipulation. He is, in a sense, uh, existing in heaven itself and not uh, opposed and uh, brought down and facing uh, the, the enmity of evil. But he is I and exalted and he is above uh, the, uh, the passing tribulations of this world. But also there's a picture of his train, of his robe filling the temple. I guess you can look back to some of the royal weddings and uh, seeing uh, the bride coming into St. Paul's or Westminster Abbey uh, with a huge train behind her dress, carried by page boys. In a sense, that's a picture of uh, the king seated on his throne. He's one who has been in the midst of this world, and as a result of that, uh, he is returning in triumph into heaven itself, into the place of God. And so the train of his robe is suggestive of the sort of heavenly high priestly garments which were modeled in the temple here upon earth, of that heavenly throne room of God. And the train is often depicted as uh, the Lord Almighty, in a sense, uh, being highly exalted and worshipped by those who worship him. And that brings us to the, uh, the angels that surround the, the king on his throne. For above him stood the seraphim. Who are these seraphim? Well, they are a, a category of angels, of these uh, spiritual beings that dwell in the presence of God, 
and to do his bidding uh, in perfection and in fullness. And what actually marks the seraphim out from some of the other angels is the way in which the, the phrase itself could be translated as the fiery ones, those who, uh, by word and by action, show an appropriate response to a holy God, to the holy Lord. As we'll see, holiness is all about being cut off or separate from all that is imperfect. And so what do these fiery ones do? Well, the fire protects and rejoices and contributes to this sense of otherness, which is part and parcel of the vision of a holy God. And these mighty fiery ones, these seraphims, are characterized by actions and by words that speak to the holiness and the glory of this God. Their actions and their words uh, speak of their reverence of the true and living God, of their service to the true and living God, and to their praise of the holy God. What about the reverence? Well, uh, the actual portrait we get of these characters is, is quite striking. They are these heavenly spiritual beings that unusually have six wings. Two of them cover their eyes in a sign of humility. And two other wings cover their feet, which seems to be an echo back to how we began the service when Moses in the wilderness and saw the burning bush and he began to approach. And God said, Whoa, take off the sandals from your feet, for you stand upon holy ground. And so even these angelic beings, in a sense, have to cover their naked, bare feet, which speak of their creatureliness, their created uh, uh, quality, which in a sense cannot stand unhindered in the presence of a holy God. And then, as we'll see in a moment, the other wings enable them to go and do the Lord's bidding. But first of all, the reverence, as two pairs of wings cover with humility, the face and the feet of these fiery ones. What about their uh, the praise? And this is probably more important than uh, getting a, a visual picture of how these seraphim appeared. Of much more importance is to listen to what they're saying. For it says there in verse 3, And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The interesting thing here is this threefold repetition of the word holy. Some have said it uh, is a foretaste of the Trinity. Holy Father, Holy Son, Holy Spirit. But actually, um, probably more likely is the, uh, the sort of Hebrew idiom in poetry of using repetition in order to enforce the point. Holy plus holy is more holy than holy. But if you have holy plus holy plus holy, it's a superlative 
the most holy thing you could imagine. Remember when Jesus often introduced his parables or some of his famous sayings, he would say something like, truly, truly, I say to you. Um, Just for emphasis, but actually to have this threefold emphasis, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, is saying that this is the most important aspect of the character of God. He is holy above all else. And in a sense, interestingly, it's only here in this passage and in this reference that three descriptives are put together in relation to God. The Bible never says of God, God is love, love. Love, no. Nor merciful, nor wrathful, nor justice. But actually, holy, holy, holy is a unique description. And it goes to the heart of the character and the being of God. And so, above all, in this vision, it reveals the fact that God is holy. These fiery ones, these seraphim, are singing uh, in tune. And they're spot on in identifying the holiness of being central to the character of our God. So what is this holiness that is spoken of here? It is God's distinctiveness, the thing that makes him out to be who he is, in distinction to all else that has been created, into all otherness or other apartness. It is the holiness of God which characterizes him. And in a sense, there are two aspects to this distinctiveness, this separation, this thing that sets God apart from everything else in his creation. One is the transcendence of God, and the other is his perfect righteousness. Now, the transcendence is sort of hinted at in the visual language here of him being high and exalted and far above us. And that is why it's impossible for us to enter into his presence uh, because he is such greater and grander than we are. So his transcendence, his otherness, his separation is part of the awesome response that we have to his glory and his majesty. But there's a gilded hedge to this transcendence because it's also characterized by righteousness. And this brings in a a moral dimension. Not only is it hard to approach God because he is transcendent, high and holy and separate, but actually because he is morally righteous and pure, anything that is less than pure cannot enter in to his presence because uh, anything that is morally stained and imperfect cannot abide in the presence of something that is totally perfect and righteous. And that goes to the heart and the dilemma of any man or woman, of any creature. How can we be right with a holy God? 
And that certainly was the experience of this man, Isaiah, the prophet. He had been part of the establishment. He lived within the temple precincts in his earlier life. But as God called him to the vocation of prophet and mouthpiece of God, he had to face up to the fact that there was something that barred him from the presence of a holy and a righteous God. And that was his moral failure and his moral imperfection. And this is what he uh, speaks of in response in verse 6. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, uh, the Lord of hosts. Clearly, such a vision couldn't leave Isaiah unmoved. But his response is not one of ecstatic rapture, but rather one of terror and fear. Woe is me, I am lost, or I am undone. Why? Because he senses his sinful imperfection, which would bar him from the presence of a holy God. He says that, uh, um, woe is me, and I am um, ruined, or I am lost. Why would this be so? Well, there are two things. He says, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty, and the Lord of hosts. He's seen something of the purity and the glory of God, and as such, that has cut him to the quick. But he also has said, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. Picture here of the Old Testament speaking of anything unclean that is forbidden, that is unfit to be in God's presence. And clearly it has this sort of moral dimension that by nature we are not clean enough or acceptable to a holy and righteous God in and of ourselves by nature. What we need is a transformation. What we need is a cleansing. And that is what he goes on to describe for us in verses 6 and 7. The wonderful transformation that occurred in Isaiah's life and is a picture of the healing and the transformation which we all need if we are to be right with God. And paradoxically, uh, Isaiah uh, confesses, uh, or his confession of being unclean, uh, just like all his fellow Israelites, a, a man of uncleanness, living amongst a, a people of uncleanness, it is this very confession that sets him apart from the rest of his contemporaries. Because what it's saying here is that he's willing to acknowledge his own uh, condition. This seems to be the only condition or prerequisite before cleansing can take place. Our only fitness in coming to God 
is to recognize our unfitness in coming to God. And so you have this wonderful picture of the seraphims being engaged to take this coal from off the altar in the temple, in the presence of God, this burning coal, which is not touched by the angel's hands, but by tongues. And it is brought to uh, Isaiah. And as it touches his lips, his guilt is taken away and his sins are atoned for, according to verse 7. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Here is a a sort of an Old Testament uh, temple image of what Jesus Christ came into the world to do through his death and resurrection. What we need if we want to be in the presence of a holy God is to have the wickedness and the sinfulness of our life uh, peeled off skin and layer by layer until the bottom of our imperfection can be touched by the grace of God and can be purified to have our sin cauterized and burnt to stop it spreading in order that it might be replaced by the forgiveness and the grace of God. And so what we have here is a picture of the Lord healing the Old Testament symbolic foretaste of what Jesus Christ came to do through his death and his resurrection on the cross. Uh, Time has defeated us and we uh, can't really go on to finish the rest of the chapter. But actually, uh, that's a good place to finish where the Lord has not only heard the confession of Isaiah, but has actually brought about the cleansing and the restoration and the transformation. What we don't have time to cover in verses 8 to 13 are uh, some quite difficult parts because it really recounts to us uh, what Isaiah is then commissioned to do, which is to go to the people and to show them that unless they are touched by the grace of God, They will go on in their sin and they will become hardened and more resistant to God. And also it reveals to us uh, that he needed to preach to them uh, the justice of God and that because they were a sinful people and refused to listen to the ministry of Isaiah, uh, eventually judgment will befall them and they will be sent forth into exile. But actually, even though that's a hard message, for Isaiah to hear, and quite a disturbing one. There is just a a little glimpse of hope in that last section of the chapter, because although his ministry was to foretell the hardening and the increasing sinfulness of the people, and that God would eventually uh, confront them with their wickedness by sending them into exile, there is a small glimpse at the end of the chapter that this judgment will not be final, that a small remnant will escape the judgment. And as we see in the last phrase, the holy seed, the holy seed, the offspring, the descendant of that which is holy and set apart is the stamp that will remain. 
a foretaste of uh, what the gospel would accomplish. That although many might turn away from God and harden their hearts to him, there will be a remnant, a stamp, that will be a holy seed, a seed that is transformed by the grace of God so that it might enter into and experience the glory of God. So although we've skimmed a little bit that last section of the chapter, what does Isaiah chapter 6 give to us? Well, it gives to us an awesome view of God, but also a succinct portrait of Isaiah, a man like you and me, a real human being, a man who received a big vision of God, who came to a deep awareness of his own sinfulness and of one who then, in a sense, confessed his sin to God and received a profound experience of God's grace, uh, the cauterization of his lips as a sign that God can put to death our sin and our rebellion and replace it with transformative grace. And then we see in verse 8 in this chapter that as a result of that transformation of grace, there was a, a willingness to spend and be spent in the Lord's service, even though it was a less than easy task that was entrusted to him. But he was willing to go as the Lord sent him because of the vision of God that he had, because of his awareness of the sin from which he was delivered, and the grateful uh, thankfulness for the transforming grace that had transformed and changed him, that he was willing to go and spend the rest of his life in what was a arduous task, but which, in a sense, would accomplish what the Lord sent him out to do.